Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lalo. And today we're actually doing a listener Q&A. Um, we, our, change, our changes got planned. And plans got changed last minute because of Texas and weather down there. One of our guests was going to come on, wasn't able to. So um, we're going to go over a bunch of questions that came from our Facebook group. And if you want to ask questions there, come join and we will eventually answer them on a show. Um, and then also, did I, should I mention next week's live Q&A <laughs> right now since I just brought it up? <laughs> you should, but it will be when they hear this, it will be tonight. Yes, that's true. Good point. The 25th. So, Tonight, we are doing a live Q&A, or right now, whenever you listen to the podcast on Thursday, <laughs> um, we are doing a live Q&A at, as a, I, I can't remember, was it like 9.30? This is how prepared I am today, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yes. Joe says yes. Okay, good. So, and that's going to be on our YouTube channel. We will have a link in, in the description for that and, um, or in the show notes, whatever I go back into my YouTube mode. Uh, but anyway, so today we're going to be doing a Q and a, like I said, we'll discuss how to handle like forced breaks, things we can offer newsletter subscribers other than a free story, rapid releasing versus releasing when the books are ready. So basically holding off the books and rapid releasing, or just releasing when they're re ready, uh, maintaining healthy schedules, republishing books, marketing paperbacks, and a bunch of other topics that fall under marketing productivity and running an author business. Um, before we get into that, do you guys want to go ahead and share some news? Sure. Uh, for my news, for the first time ever, I had a book go ridiculously short. Uh, as you know, I tend to go long. So I've, I've learned to outline on the short side so that when I go long, I hit my mark. And I adjusted for the slice by way too much. The epic fantasy plot, it hit the end of the plot at 60,000 words, which is about half what I was shooting for. Like I was actually aiming for 100,000 words and expecting to hit at 120. I won't, if I hit 100,000, I'll release it. I think that's sufficient with the amount of story I have. But uh, yeah, I've never gone 40,000 under my target. Uh, so my usual impulse to expend, extend stuff didn't kick in as much with the scenes. Like this is why somebody asked uh, uh, in a comment why my stuff tends to go long. It tends to go long because scenes that I'm very interested in, I add a lot of dialogue to, and I often fail to line up my timelines correctly. So I end up having to put a lot of filler scenes. And this time I lined up my timelines very well. So I had to put in two filler scenes instead of a dozen. And uh, the dialogue stayed very light. So Whatever. It turns out I'm going to have to start outlining for the actual length I want to hit because I'm getting good enough following my outlines and good enough at outlining that that's, uh, I can't rely upon the extra 25% anymore. Uh, it's not a, it's not a problem because, you know, it's a, it's an epic fantasy. And the nice thing about epic fantasy is if you need it to be longer, just add another viewpoint. Uh, I, I kept it mostly with an A plot with brief cutaways to a B plot. Uh, now the B plot will graduate to being a full B plot where whenever, you know, full, full chapters might be in that point of view. Uh, also I put up one of my, I don't, I forget if I mentioned this in the prior news thing, but after Lindsay's experience with putting up audiobooks, I decided to give it a shot, putting up an audiobook on, uh, on YouTube. And it's been doing slow, but steady viewership. Like I had only a handful of videos anyway. Um, so this one's by far the most, it's funny watching the comparison to last month when it's like greater than 999% increase. Uh, that said, like, I'm going to hit my, my, like, you need, a, you need 4,000 hours of, of listening. Uh, and I'm going to hit that handily, but I'm not getting the subscribers. So I guess if you want to subscribe to me, go ahead, but that's not what this is about. That's just explaining. It turns out audiobooks really do quite well. Uh, and they're very, 
they turn up very well in searches. So I would certainly recommend that if you have a bunch of them that you've self-produced, um, there's there's certainly some value. There's a market for them in uh, in YouTube, as Lindsay said. And that's it for my news. Yeah, I got the watch hours a lot sooner than I got the subscribers. Just that's probably obvious since they're 10 hour videos. I mean, I think yours is five. You did a, a light epic fantasy. But um, yeah, that it took a little while longer to get the subscribers, especially since, unless you're snazzy with the editing, you're probably not going to jump in at the end of the audiobook and be like, hey, give me a thumbs up and please subscribe to the channel. So it's a little different than doing a video. So for my news, I I finished my first epic fantasy. Sent it off to my editor. I mine is about one hundred fifty thousand words. So I get that for once. I've written more than Joe. I feel like you, yours are usually longer, <laughs> but it was actually right on my goal because I wanted to get about that so I could have a fifteen hour audio book. And for me, I just uh, this seems to be about where I end up once I've got several point of view characters. If I have one or two point of view characters, books usually stay under like 90,000. So it's really, like Joe said, a matter of having more characters. And uh, like in this, I have kind of an A storyline and a B storyline, and then several POVs uh, doing things in the various storylines. Not that you should necessarily shoot for that unless you're trying to write long for some reason, or you're just trying to write epic fantasy. And we're both very subpar compared to some of the epic fantasy out there in the 200,000, 300,000 word range. I also decided to write a Valentine's Day story uh, for my sci-fi fans using the characters from my Star Kingdom series. And I just put that up on my blog on Valentine's Day. I think that was about the end of five or 6,000 words. It was super fun to write. I just, it's got a little bit of a plot, but it was very just the comedic stuff without worrying about the heavy action adventure, that kind of thing. And the readers really liked it. I did, we're going to talk about email later down. I didn't make myself a lot of work, extra work because I, of course I emailed my newsletter subscribers for the sci-fi when I had it up and they were all, not all, but uh, a lot of replies, a lot of uh, interest. Also, I decided to write another book in that series, not not extending the main storyline, but with a couple of new heroes with cameos with the existing characters. And this is basically because the epic fantasy is kind of hard, man. <laughs> 50,000 words, multiple POVs. I had originally intended to write three, the first three back to back before letting myself go off and do something else. But I was like, oh, I'm already kind of rereading the last Star Kingdom book so that I could get back into the characters to write the Valentine's Day story. And I was like, maybe I'll just do a light, you know, 70, 80,000 word story in between and then jump into the uh, second epic fantasy, which means I'm probably not going to have a... Definitely not going to be doing a rapid release with this one. I won't necessarily have like three books. I won't hold them and wait. So we'll see how that does. Um, it may be, I probably, I'll decide later, but I may not price book one at 99 cents, which is something I often do at the launch if I have book two and three ready to go right after. Uh, this will get more presumably from page reads, assuming I can get a good number of readers. But uh, we'll see. I may be kind of torpedoing uh, the earnings this year by not really focusing on one series. Uh, maybe I'll, if it doesn't go well, I can always do something else in the second half of the year, but hopefully it'll do fine. Uh, I guess that's it for my news. Okay. Um, I am unmuted. Yes. It just gave me a really weird notification. It hasn't done that in a while. Okay. All right. So I checked into a hotel for two nights earlier this week and it was so fantastic. It was like, it was phenomenal. Um, I finished edit edits. My editor sent me for the book that I wrote in January and they were some of the biggest edits I've had in a long time. She was like, this will just take a couple sentences here and there. And it took me 
like a week and a half. <laughs> it hasn't happened since the second book I wrote. And um, anyway, but it's, I, I feel like it's a lot stronger now. And I started the next book. I actually started the next two books. Um, I took a break for one from one, the second book in the series to write my reader magnet. Um, Cause I was like, Oh, I can't start releasing until I actually have a reader magnet available anyway. So um, it's been going really, really well. And I've been going to a hotel once a month lately. Actually, I went twice last week, last month and that's been fantastic. And um, the kids don't miss me as much when I'm gone for a full day, as opposed to me trying to sneak away like every day, all day all day long, every single day, uh, just to get in a bit of writing. And I'm also more productive at the hotel. So it makes up for the time I would have spent trying to get things in here and there, uh, at home. And so I'm able to spend more time with the kids and I I get more book writing time in too. So, and it's been working really, really, really great. Uh, I've been like, I've been loving it anyway. Um, our nanny has been great. We've been adjusting to getting one. It's kind of just weird, you know, like we have somebody living in our house now, right? <laughs> but she's really fantastic. She's absolutely great with the kids and definitely really grateful for that um, choice that we made. And I actually think um, Jana and, and Melissa, who are in my author mastermind group for suggesting it because it's been really good so far. Anyway, things are going really, really well right now. I just, I'm kind of like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Like when's the end of this, this peaceful, peaceful storm going to end? And anyway, yep. So that's pretty much what's going on for me this week. And, um, we're going to go ahead and go into questions. Excuse me. Um, I wanted to make a comment really fast on our Facebook thread that has the questions from our listeners. I went down and I was like, we're answering this question this week. And then I was like, I did that with a bunch of people before realizing that some of them we'd answered and some of them we hadn't, or we'd answered questions very similar because I have horrible memory. I don't remember what we've answered, what we haven't. And so if we don't answer your direct question this week, that's probably why, because I was like, wait, we answered this already. So if we have not answered your question already, <laughs> then I don't know, let us know somehow or come tonight to the, um, live Q and a anyway. So we're going to go ahead to the questions. And I think Joe, you've got the first one. Yep. This question is from John Boyd. Have any of you republished a work and why, uh, what are the merits of, and downsides of republishing? I am turning a previously published standalone into the first book of a quartet and I'm making some serious changes to the story. So I'm wondering if I should republish. And I'm first to answer. Um, I've, I've republished several things. I've republished an entire series and I'm working on possibly republishing another one. Uh, it, I don't know yet if I'm going to do the second one, but the first one, um, it's the very first series I wrote, the Clinia series, which was, is now called the Clinic Chronicles. And it was geared originally to middle grade readers. Um, I never quite jive with the feel of that though, because it's the one that got picked up by a publisher and the publisher had some guidelines that my editor who is still my editor had to follow. And in putting, implementing those guidelines, it kind of changed the feel of the story enough where it was no longer fully mine. Um, I always wanted it to be a young adult book series, but, uh, I, I aged everybody. I aged the character wrong and all of that anyway. So the covers were outdated and the writing of the first book was not great, but I knew judging by read through that if people finished that first book, like my read through was like 98% from book one to book two. So if people finished book one, no book one to book two, no, that wasn't the read through read through book two through the rest ones. Anyway. So I knew that if I fixed that first book that, um, the series would do well. And so I rewrote the first half of it completely. I changed the age of the character. I added in more graphic stuff, you know, like torture because torture is exciting. Um, anyway, so I re-released as a teen epic fantasy and it's done really well since then, especially compared to how it did in the beginning. It's like tripled what it made in the first seven years it was published and it gets 
featured by BookBub every six months. And it's just, it's reviewing really well. And I'm really, really grateful I did that. Um, I don't, I definitely do not regret re-releasing it. And, um, as an FYI, I did, I started over completely from scratch. I lost all my original reviews. I got new AS, AS, and all of that. Um, but with a book that is a standalone and that you're turning into a series, I don't know that a re-release would be necessary, but I think Joe, Joe, you did something with your book of Deacon series where it was originally supposed to be so short and then you lengthened it or something like that. I'm wondering if that's kind of similar to what John is wondering if he, like, if he doesn't need to re-release everything and just add on to the current book and then just tweak things accordingly. Uh, the Book of Deacon series was originally released as a trilogy. And if you read the first three books, it, it, uh, it definitely reads as a complete series. And then I added books four or five and six. And I also spun off some other stuff, but there's like the main series went from three books to, to, to six books. And um, I mean, in that case, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't feel the need to republish. I have never republished anything. Uh, I think that you can get away with, um, keeping things the same. Uh, uh, but again, if you're massively reworking the first one in order to get it to work with the rest, which I didn't do, my books stay the same, then potentially it's worth, uh, it's worth re-releasing them just to avoid confusion. Um, but then again, if your book didn't sell very much, then there's not going to be much confusion to be had. So it, it, you can go either way on this. I, uh, I, I would probably, if I had a book that I felt I completely botched, um, and I'm not saying that you did, but like that is a situation in which I would, I would republish. Like we talk a lot about Pizza Dragon. That's a book that I would potentially republish. And I'm actually thinking about doing so because everyone calls it Pizza Dragon. I call it Pizza Dragon. That's not the name of the book. It's Structophis. So just re-releasing it under the name that everyone calls it would probably be a pretty good thing. Um, but again, I'm not even sure. That, well, changing the title, I think, is, is, is the like major change to the title is probably where I would mark the, uh, you know, just completely pull down the old one, put, put up the new one. Um, but yeah, like rebranding something severely uh, and if there's a major change to the content especially if it has got a following um when you make a major change to the content and then turn something into a sequel people who read the first one won't know they have to reread the first one because it's different like there's i can see why uh, uh that sort of reworking would lead to a would lead to a re-release but under my circumstances it would be more of a rebranding that i would be trying that sort of thing on yeah, I have not republished anything. So this is just hypo my hypothetical thoughts. And it would kind of actually depend on have a lot of people purchase this and read it would be what I would ask first, because I feel like you probably can't do this. And honestly, <laughs> if you've sold it to a lot of people, like I feel like you'd still have to have the original available. I don't even know what happens if somebody tries to re-download it to their Amazon library and you've taken the book down <laughs> and now it's a new book. I don't know. Maybe somebody can let us know in the comments what happens there if they can still get the old one. Um, but yeah, if, it, it would just depend. But usually I see when people ask this question, they're thinking about it. It's because the first one didn't sell or, and probably reviews are not that great. So you're not losing anything if you take the old one down and, and republish with new AISNs. So um, that's kind of what I'm going to assume. And yeah, w why not then? Uh, the only thing I would say is that if anybody read it, which I assume some people have read it, so I would just make it really clear in the blurb that it was previously published as such and such so that nobody accidentally buys it and then feels cheated. 
Um, and yeah, but yeah, otherwise it's, it's a great idea to do if you just feel like didn't do well and you want to relaunch it, redo it. I think you said as a quartet, um, it gives you a whole new chance to like start from scratch and, uh, possibly have a little new release love if you start some advertising and get a little momentum behind it and the stores. So definitely worth considering. I would just have, I really think about it if I, if a lot of people had read it. All right. The next question is from Blake R. Wolf. This one is for all of you. I'm currently currently at the beginning of a series, one book published and one slated for February 2021. Sorry, Blake, you probably put this question up a couple months ago. We haven't done a Q&A show for a little while. Um, but he says, I've set up Amazon ads, Facebook ads, and even take out, take, taken out a couple for mailing lists. Is there anything else I can do to drive traffic and entice people to start a new fantasy series? Um, okay, so at this point, and this is advice people don't like hearing. <laughs> uh, the most important thing for you to do at this point is to write more books, even before you push a lot of money into the two you have now, assuming the next one is out already since we are in February. Uh, that said, as a newsletter person, I would suggest you focus on creating a reader magnet and building up your newsletter. Uh, it's hard to get people to start a new series, but if you have a newsletter list, it's a little easier because you can ask them to post reviews and share the books with families and friends and then download the second book if it's available. Uh, I would agree that uh, in addition to what you've already got, I think writing and putting out more content should be your focus, uh, a reader magnet or some other short giveaway. Also, potentially, if you've got a social media presence, particularly on Facebook, which I assume you do since you mentioned that you were doing Facebook ads, um, it, this might be a good time in the interim to start making posts a little bit more often, a little more consistently. They don't have to be big, just sort of common enough that there's always some level of activity uh, so that your engagement will be a little bit higher when the time comes for a bigger mention, a bigger, you know, launch this. Uh, the idea isn't to just suddenly have this giant social media strategy, but just to uh, have the engagement higher. And, th and this is like a, just a sprinkle on top of what you're already doing. I think, I think you've got a pretty strong launch thing already. All right. So with two books out, uh, you probably don't want to spend huge amounts of money on going at this point until you've got like a, a bigger series. And you know that if you spend X amount on book one, so many people read through it and you make money on the series. Uh, I do think it's fine to throw some ads at a new release. I certainly would. And see if you can kind of get it to stick, get a little or some organic loving, some sales from, you know, popping into the like on, on Amazon, the also bots. And, you know, maybe you can ranking a top 100 for one of your subgenres that you're in. Um, but then after a few weeks, if it doesn't, if it's, you're spending more than you're making and it doesn't seem like you're getting a whole lot of organic sales, I would maybe pause the ads at that point until you've got more out in the series. Every time you release a new book, you know, it's, it's a good opportunity to maybe drop price on book one and run a sale on that one and try again to get more people in the series. As far as other things you can do besides the ads, you guys know I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, even if there's just a short story doing like a free short tie-in story that would, uh, with an excerpt to the first book that, uh, lets people enjoy the characters, get to know them a little bit and entices them to want to read more with, while still feeling like a satisfying story. And then putting that free story out there everywhere you can, uh, you have to do the price matching, of course, to have it free on Amazon. But if you've put it free in the other stores, you can usually get it free on Amazon after a while. And, you know, you can even give Wattpad and, and there's other places. I, we 
talked about, I think just a week or two ago, we weren't really sure Wattpad was really super helpful for building a fan base. But when you've got that little free thing, just putting it out there, all the places where people could potentially be looking for it and might give it a shot. And that's the kind of thing that can... Uh, as opposed to the ads, which as soon as you turn them off and stop spending money, they stop sending traffic to your book. You know, free things, people can stumble across those from years to come. So I always recommend that. Okay, our next question is from Christopher. He says, um, for all of us, if you plan to publish wide and have three books saved up, and then in parentheses, he says, I might have four ready to put on pre-order by then too. Um, Is there a point to rapid releasing or could you just publish all three at once, stagger their pricing and start pushing book one? Why wait and not push straight to the more mature marketing strategy? All right. Since you're doing wide, I'm going to say I usually just put everything out there when I, because I'm taking a series from Kindle Unlimited. So I wait until I have all the books and I put them out there all, all at once. But I'm going to be honest, this is super half-assed. This is me going, I'm really focused on Amazon and the releases there right now. And basically when it's time to put stuff out on the other sites, I just throw it all out there, try to get a few ads and let it roll. And I, I don't really recommend that, especially if you want wide to be your main strategy. The thing with um, putting it all out there at once is you're basically getting, you're basically getting one shot to be noticed. Uh, and then, you know, because you usually get especially on Amazon, I've noticed, but I think on the other stores too, you're more likely to get a little loving when you've got a new release. And that you're probably focusing on doing stuff for it. You're probably announcing your newsletter, you know, running some ads. And we've talked about, I think it was episode 69 when we brought up the theory of diffusion of innovation. And one of the things that basically it takes time for things to take catch on sort of the rolling stone gradually, or I guess the snowball rolling down the the ski mountain and becoming an avalanche over time. It takes time for it to gather momentum. So if you put a book out, all the books out in the series at once, okay, well, at that point, you're just stuck like, you know, hoping you can drive sales to that book one. Everything's out there. Everything's backlist essentially after a couple months. Um, Whereas if you put one out every, however often you want to publish, you know, you're saving them up. Maybe you do one a month or one every two months. Each time you do a new release, new people are going to happen to be browsing the store in your categories at that time that weren't there two months ago, or the two in two months from now, new people will be checking out looking for a new author and, and they might see book three and that will lead them to check out your book one. Uh, so it's like each time is an, another opportunity to be noticed and to get readers to check out your books. It, it's really hard to keep stuff selling indefinitely. You'll find that I've certainly found that after a series as I've done with releasing books in it, it becomes more challenging to keep that series selling when I moved on to new stuff. And uh, on Amazon specifically, you've got the hot new releases spot where if you can get into that for your your genre, that's potentially another place where you can be seen for up to 30 days after release, you can be in that hot new releases spot. So ideally, you want to be in that with each book if you can. And like I said, it's just more potential for there to be a boost every time you release a new book. And every time you're going to, with time, you can gather more fans so that by the time you're releasing book four, book five, book six, you may have more people buying it than like if you did it right now, and maybe you don't have a big fan base yet. So that alone, the, the fans you've built up over time from the newer, earlier releases can help put, let's say, book six way at the top of your category where it's going to be noticed by a lot more people. And that's my thoughts on that. <laughs> um, I think if you have a really strong launch strategy, you could potentially release them all at once and have a, you know, it would be a fan, you know, an enormous event. 
But I personally view a launch as one of the few times that the uh, the individual store algorithms are usually trying you know, moving the needle for you a little bit. Like Lindsay says, the you know the hot release area and stuff like that. So I like to use every launch as an opportunity to to drive some additional uh, traffic to my stuff. And if you do it as one gigantic bonanza, then you only do it once. If you do it as a bunch of different releases, then you have a bunch of different releases. There's also a second reason that I usually do this. And it's because I typically assume I'm going to make some mistakes. Uh, with any new release, there's something different about it than the previous one. Um, so I always sort of assume that I'm not going to do it perfect on the first try. So I like having the capacity to course correct. Even if it's just a week or two in between releases, if I see that I, you know, whatever, uh, these ads I thought were going to really pay off for me aren't going to pay off. And either either put more money into the next one or whatever. I like being able to iteratively learn. And you can do that with separate releases, but you can't do it in the same way with, uh, with just the one. And I like how we all have very different opinions on this. Because <laughs> I, I think I, it would depend on also your your life situation. So for me personally, I'm fine with you doing that because, um, okay. So one, okay. There's, there's a lot, a lot in my little brain right now, but, um, I've done that before. I did that with the clinical chronicles. I just released all six books on at once. And I actually, it was when we, I got interviewed by Lindsay and Joe and Jeff back on their old show. And, um, I was in the middle of that release when they interviewed me. Anyway, I don't regret doing that just because my personal schedule, like it's just launches are really, really hard for me to, to work around. I just, I've always struggled with them. I don't make a whole lot of money on them. And uh, it's possibly because I don't focus on them, you know, so it's like the chicken and the egg. Um, but I've, I've learned that I can, with one exception, always make money on a series after it's released and more than I did on the launch. And so it just depends on what your, like what your life is like, what your personal life is like, if you have to focus on separate launches, because what they both said is absolutely accurate. Um, like the hot new release lists, all of that stuff, you get one chance to get notice on those things. Um, but also like if you're rapid releasing them, remember that Rabbits works best if you can maintain that schedule after. And if you already have a name in the genre, um, like it was when Mal Cooper came on that, you know, we were like, wait, rapid release doesn't work. And I, after I'm like, I've done, done a lot of research into that. And I think that's accurate that if you are already having a name in the genre and if you're already releasing regularly, rapid release works, but if you don't, and if you're new, it doesn't necessarily work. However, like what they said though, you have opportunities each time you release a new book to hit the market and to get attention. And so anyway, so, um, there are strategies that work and strategies that don't work. The ones that don't work might move a few copies if you have a ton of books out, but the ones that work when you have a couple books are going to be ones that work when you have a hundred books or a thousand books. Well, actually, no, we don't usually have a thousand books, <laughs> but, um, anyway, so the results will be much bigger. And, but, and I've noticed working with authors that a lot of them get stuck on things that move a few copies. I, they're like, I sold 10 books. It worked. And not realizing that they could have moved way more if they'd done something else. So you just have to figure out what else works for you and, um, go with that. And then recognize that this one launch, this one release, these books is not going to be the last ones you ever launched, the last ones you ever released. So if you make a mistake on this, if you regret something, then do something different the next time. Anyway, so personally, I'm my, my brain, my personal life, I would just launch them all at once and then just say, I'll make money on them later and then do better in the future. But <laughs> that's not necessarily the best way to go. 
All right. Next question is from uh, James Mathis. Paper books, paperbacks seem to be the redheaded stepchildren of indie publishing now. This month, I've actually sold as many paperbacks as ebooks. Any special tips about marketing paperbacks? Okay, so I have one tip here. Um, I would suggest running Ask Them through Facebook because they let you select your audience and make it pretty narrow. And I'm sure there's an option for people like paperback books, and you can narrow that down further to similar authors to what you've written or some or in, in the genre. Like you could say, you know, if you wrote an urban fantasy book, then you would, you know, target urban fantasy readers of paperback books. But there's no reason why you can't um, market your paperbacks. And if you're already doing well on that, assuming that's still the case now, you know, several months later when you have a question, then yeah, Facebook. I don't see why that wouldn't be a bad idea. I decided to take a peek at my paper book sales while we were talking about the last question there. Because uh, I have been aware that I've been selling more, at least on Amazon, since the switch from CreateSpace to KDP Print. Don't really know why that would be. I haven't done anything extra for marketing them. Uh, I, I haven't looked, gone into look like which series is selling the most. It may just be that this last series uh, did better and was more appealing in paperback. Um, but the one thing uh, I actually used to only make like a hundred dollars from paperbacks and had like a thousand dollars this last month. So maybe I should be focusing a little bit more on this and playing around. Like, oh, there's some potential here. Um, I would say that the main thing is if you are going to put some focus on it with ad money is to just raise the price a couple dollars. I feel like paperbacks, they're going to, they're expensive anyway, if you're on print on demand. So it's probably not going to make that huge of a difference if you're going from 1199 to 1399. And that gives you a little more profit to actually play around with. Also, uh, if you're doing, if you're talking like KDB, KDB print, KDP print, be aware that if you select expanded distribution, it forces you to raise the prices quite a bit higher without necessarily making more. So I check no on expanded distribution and then I go to Ingram Spark to get into the other stores and libraries because I've heard from numerous people in the industries anyway that nobody wants to buy the books from Amazon, like the libraries and the other stores don't want to buy their books from Amazon. So it's good, good to be in like the Ingram Spark catalog. And that's also another little revenue stream that you might, you know, I get sales from there even again without doing much. So yeah, if you actually put a little effort into it and wanted to, uh, I think you could see a reward for it. Just make sure you're charging enough that uh, you're actually going to make three or four dollars per book so it's worth spending money on and, and putting your time into for the paperbacks um i don't typically market paperbacks specifically but as Lindsay says uh doing the ingram spark for non-amazon stuff allows you to keep your costs per book lower and therefore either you make more money off of having a book at a standard paper book price paperback price or you can try doing the same thing that a lot of us do with ebooks and making your paperback the budget alternative to other paperbacks because it's a buck or two less. Uh, because even though print on demand is way more expensive uh, per book than uh, doing you know print runs, the uh, the big publishers still charge more for their paperbacks than a print on demand book can be priced if you have you know set the price adequately. Uh, Ways to sell paperbacks. It's not exactly scalable. Like this is not a way you're going to start blowing blowing uh, away your your old sales totals. But remember that because paperbacks are physical items, you can sell them uh, with things like autographs, and uh, you're going to want to charge a premium because you're going to have to ship it, and that's no fun. Alternately, 
you can do a thing, and I've seen some people do this. I can't remember the last time I saw someone do it, but it, it's a tactic that you can understand why it would work. Is if one of your fans buys, you can you can make it clear to your fans that if they buy one of your paperbacks and say show it on on Twitter or on their social media, hey, I bought this paperback. Uh, and then like link you to it, you will send them an autographed something like a book plate. Like I have, I, I got a bunch of these book plates. If you're watching the video that oh, ooh, it likes to edit them out, but uh, it's just a sticker that goes in the front and the front cover and you can put it into an envelope and put one stamp on it and it goes wherever you want. And it's a lot easier uh, and simpler than sending out a full autographed copy. Plus when people are sharing your book on social media, it's, being seen by other people on social media. It's a form of word of mouth advertising. If you're really not interested in handling the entire concept of shipping things, you can also do a self-addressed stamp envelope. All of that being said, that is ways to make money and additional money off of paperbacks. I don't think any of these are really going to move the needle very much in terms of just selling more paperbacks overall. So listen to the other advice given if you're looking for just standard marketing of paperbacks. Yeah, I should add too that we've had Damon Courtney from Book Funnel on, and he will actually be on as soon as Texas has power again. Uh, we were supposed to have him on tonight, but we're rescheduling. But because Book Funnel is now offering audiobooks, and of course they have ebooks, and I know Damon has mentioned uh, that some of his people, his customers in the past, what they're doing is bundling. Like if you buy the paperback, you know, you will also get like the ebook and the audiobook, and you get those digital files right away. But by bundling like that, it doesn't really cost you anything extra. Extra to throw in the ebook and the audiobook, but it's perceived as a big value. So you might be able to sell, basically, be selling your paperback for $30, $40 to the super fan that would like all the formats. And I'm amazed that I, I mean, I guess I'm not amazed because I have done this too with authors that I really love. I've like got the paperback, the ebook, and the audiobook. I didn't necessarily buy it all at once, but you know how it is. You want to read the book, you don't know where the paperback is. So you rebuy the ebook and then you got a road trip coming up and you need something to listen to. So you buy the audiobook. So for people like that, they might be enticed. These are, you know, your big fans to drop 30 or $40 in order to get the whole bundle of everything, especially if you sign the paperback too, which you, it becomes more worth doing in a case like that where you're making more for each one uh next question alexa king what can we offer or give to new subscribers virtually as a welcome gift for an onboard sequence other than a free story a newsletter onboard sequence and I just picked one thing to talk about just because it's something that works for me as a reader uh, and it is math apps and um, even for romances like you can have a fantasy map of you know a different world or earth or something like that but even romances like house plans you know what does her house look like that she lives in and that so much happens in and they're the same thing as a map you don't even need to have them be really detailed um, a lot of readers are visual and being able to see the city or the world or the neighborhood or whatever it is um actually like being able to see it is really fun for them and that's something that i like i said i really enjoy that myself I uh, like to commission a lot of art. I used to commission a, a tremendous amount of it. Now I'm trying to be a little bit more measured. But uh, I uh, very early on, I had my cover artists do some uh, basically full cast uh, illustration of the main characters from the Book of Deacon series. And the cover of the first Book of Deacon, it, it was a major reason why I started to have a career. So having that same illustrator do some art, some more artwork that was almost certainly what had attracted a lot of people to my stuff seemed like it would work out pretty well. And it did. I mean, it had, I used, had them formatted as wallpapers for not just computers, but also tablets and cell phones and threw those in there. 
You can also uh, record a little private video, like just a video that you put up on YouTube as an unlisted link uh, that would have some, you know, Q&A, just you talking to them. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that uh, I know a lot of people really like to see videos and hear the voice of the author. That's a thing you could do. Uh, I used to just do that with Q and a things, but also um, if you have an onboarding sequence like that, sometimes just the stuff in the onboarding sequence tends to be pretty helpful. Like things that people are, are happy to have the opportunity to do. Cause I ask a lot of questions in my onboarding sequence. So I talked about not getting a lot of emails. I almost always get an email from people who just signed up because I'm giving them additional opportunity for feedback. Uh, so just the, you know, throwing a poll in there that makes them feel like their voice is heard can, can be seen as a re uh, reward for your new people. So in my case, I've never actually done anything except fiction, but I, I really like the idea of maps, especially for sci-fi and fantasy fans who uh, often like maps. I'm actually getting a map for my, my epic fantasy series. This will be my first one, um, but you don't have to commission one. You, I think Inktari is the name of the site that you can, it's a fantasy map builder. If you have time to go around, go on there, it can make pretty cool ones uh, just to, you know, without hiring somebody, if you, if you like playing with that stuff, that's the kind of thing you could do. I've also seen people give away phone or desktop backgrounds based on the cover art they've had done, or like Joe, if you've had some other illustrations done, I'm, I haven't tried that, but it's something I've thought about. I keep thinking I should just ask the artist as I'm getting the cover done. Cause when they do the wraparound for the paperback, it's usually going to be that kind of rectangle that would pretty easily could be adapted to different desktop sizes. And that's just a free, you know, a thing you've got that people can download. It's not going to necessarily cost any money. Um, I'm not sure if that would get as many signups, like if that alone would be as enticing to readers as say the background story of the super intriguing character that is not a POV in the series, but that readers, readers are dying to know more about. But I would certainly think you would get some people interested in them. I think if it was me. I would do the short story or whatever, or the novella or the prequel, prequel, <laughs> uh, do that. And also, you know, do the other stuff too. And just a reminder, a reminder to myself as much as to you guys, like when I sent out the, the newsletter, the Valentine's Day story, I basically said, this is a complete spoiler. If you have to have read the whole series, this is for people who have read the whole series and read the newsletter bonus that I've had up for a while that uh, extends the series. And uh, I figured I better link to all the other bonus material that I send up at the with the welcome letter just to make sure people had had the opportunity to read everything. You know, and I went in like six, seven hours after I sent that email and like 400 people had downloaded the, uh, the old bonus. So just a reminder, whatever you do for your bonus, you might want to either link to them at the bottom of each email you send out or just a couple times a year. Hey, by the way, how, did you see these bonuses? Because chances are people signed up for your newsletter and either forgot to download them. Your newsletter went to the spam folder. Uh, you'll find that lots of people just didn't get the bonuses and they've been like wondering, where's that extra story? <laughs> so that's a, a thing to remember to do when, when you go through all the effort of having some extra thing made or making it yourself, make sure your people are actually getting it. Okay. Our next question is from, um, Vale. And I don't know how to say your last name, so I'm not going to even try. <laughs> um, it says, let's see, the question says, I'm getting ready to start treatment and the doctors are telling me to expect to lose about four to six weeks 
uh, four to six days a week of productivity for the next three to six months. Listening through some past episodes, both Andrea and Joe have had gaps in their release schedule, though not really planned. And if you'd known those gaps were coming, what would you have done differently? And I, I'm, I'm really sorry that you have to deal with that. And I know that things are going a little bit better now based on what you com- your comment, your response to my comment. So that's really good. But, um, yeah, it really bites. And I definitely understand, um, the last two years have been absolutely chaotic. I've only had two books get launched in those, those last two years because of so many ex- external issues that were going on. And if I'd known that the first gap was coming, I would have released Shadow Prophet as soon as it was finished instead of putting it up for pre-order for six months, hoping that I would have time to write more books. Um, and then, um, and if I'd known the next break was coming, I wouldn't have put anything up on pre-order at all. And I would take more time to focus on enjoying the process rather than stressing and pushing myself through it. So I released four books between October and April. And those months were so stressful and not because of the release schedule. I mean, that's basically how my release schedule usually goes, but because of external issues, messing with everything like my toddler and my health problems and just stress, lots of stuff going on. So pace yourself, take care of your health, your mental health too. be patient, know that this too shall pass and look forward to when things are less chaotic. Um, because pushing yourself to be productive when things are outside of your, outside of your control can cause a lot of problems. That's a lot of C words there. (laughs) Um, all right. Yeah. So, uh, I hope your treatment goes well or is going well. Uh, if I had known I, I I was going to have a plan gap, I had, I've had a year in my, in, during my career, I've had a year where I didn't release any books. And again, it wasn't planned. It's just, that's the way that year went. Um, if I'd known that it was going to be the case, uh, I would probably have put a little bit more effort into, at the, if I had had, like, if it was going to come up uh, again, uh, I have a Patreon, I probably would put some effort into making sure that the Patreon would be able to continue during that time. Just basically, in that case, I would have, you know, monthly releases that were short, and I could reasonably get those monthly releases done uh, far in advance. Barring that, because not everyone has a Patreon or has monthly release type stuff, I would probably ramp my newsletter up a bit and try to make my newsletter the sort of thing that, like, that people are focused on for a little while. Uh, assuming it's not a release-only newsletter, you, you can sort of do this if you prepare folks, that maybe it's going to be a weekly or a bi-weekly set of emails, and you're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with you, because if you're comfortable, because uh, the goal would be to sort of stay at the front of people's minds. Uh, it doesn't need to be a tell-all diary or anything like that, but just keeping people informed and keeping them invested in you uh, is useful. It also would be potentially a good place to talk about what you've got planned coming up. Like you don't even have to talk about if you're having troubles and you don't want to talk about the troubles, you can talk about how excited you are about what you're going to do once those troubles are over and get people start to get people excited about the coming projects. Uh, I would also, you know, I mean, keep tabs on how the newsletter is doing. If you start bleeding uh, subscribers because of the frequency of your emails, then maybe do this as a blog thing or as a social media thing, Uh, you know, it, use that as a way to keep your Facebook page or your, your Twitter account active. You could even really schedule a lot of that stuff if, you, if you're really not going to be up to doing it, uh, you know, as it goes. And the, just, again, the idea would be to avoid slipping from people's minds. I also, if at all possible, would try to have a finished book that I was going to release. Uh, I would put on a very long pre-order and have it show up about halfway through that, that time. 
so that during the pre-order, I have stuff to talk about. And I could, the thing that I will be talking about in my more frequent newsletters would be that coming book. And then there would be a release and it would feel, it would feel like it cut your delay, like your gap in your publishing thing in half, if you had at least one release in it. Uh, and yeah, that's sort of how I would, how I would plan for a big gap in the future. All right. Well, I've got to say, Bill's probably like, my last name is hard to pronounce. I'm, you can't be a sports announcer, Andrea, if you're not even going to take a shot at the five-letter names. I mean, I'm going to say Nagel. I could be wrong. But, you know. It's the Spanish background. I'm like, Nagle? <laughs> <laughs> I always feel bad for the sports announcers, you know, trying to pronounce like Goran Ivanisevich or something. That's it's not even a long one. <laughs> All right. So my thought is, it's just, it's tough with illness because you're probably not going to feel like super alive and perky leading up to it yet, treatment either. But if you know ahead of time that you need to be away for, from work for a few months, I, I guess my suggestion would be, if it's possible, to kind of slow down the releases in the time leading up to it. So maybe you've got something that you can kind of hold back and, and all you have to do is publish the book and you know, send out to your newsletter that it's up uh, when it's ready to go. Uh, alternatively, maybe you don't have the energy to do a novel, but uh, you could do like a side novella or a short story kind of during that time that, you know, an interesting story about a side character. Maybe it's something that's not part of the main series, but it is with the series characters so that people are going to care about it and want to check it out if they're reading your series. And it may not be a huge boost to income, although if you do a novella, something reasonably length, you can probably charge $2.99 instead of like 99 cents so it maybe it brings in a little money but it's the kind of thing that would kind of keep your fans it, not start to wonder what happened to you keep your work and your series in their mind uh, and i think that's all all right so next question is not <laughs> about google play promo codes which we decided if you're going to give away free books just do book funnel uh next question is from scott thrower how do you cope with replies to your mailings i never expected people would actually reply at all but properly replying to those replies could easily get time consuming okay so um i cope poorly <laughs> Um, this is something about my personality, even before I was an author and I haven't been a writer, you know, for very long, just since college, basically. Um, and before I even published emailing was really low on my favorite things to do list. Um, and I, I once heard some great advice and that was this keep replies to less than five sentence and don't leave a lot of loose ends for people to reply to. <laughs> uh, if you do this, you do need to make sure you're friendly, right? And not coming across as brushing them off because that's offensive. Um, but remember to respect your own time. Okay. And another thing I found that really helps not answering emails the minute they come in, I can answer a couple day, days later or months later. <laughs> I'm really struggling to keep up with things and I'm, I'm gracious in my replies and I apologize for not being able to answer earlier and replies honestly died down. And this, and one thing I want to know, I don't artificially postpone responses and that helps, right? It makes me feel bad that they think I don't have time to answer, but I honestly, I don't. And so I, I mean, things like things are crazy, right? When things are really, really crazy, I'm not able to even open my email. And so I'm not answering because I can't open my email because I can't answer. And so that's, that has gotten things like replies have come in fewer and fewer. Um, and then don't sign into your email until you're okay with taking the time to answer and the temptation to answer immediately won't be as strong. And then make sure if you do that, like if you like what I do, I like two weeks sometimes to open my email, make sure important emails have another place to go so that you're not losing something. 
I don't have too many folks who reply to any given newsletter uh, unless I specifically ask for feedback. And when I'm asking for feedback, I tend to have sort of a canned response going, which I actually don't have this written down, but this is worth saying. Um, if you, I have a frequently asked questions on my site. I don't use, I don't update it very often because I don't frequently get asked questions as much anymore. But if you find that a lot of people are answering or replying to your emails with questions and the questions are coming up pretty frequently, number one, put together frequently asked questions. And uh, I'm not saying you should redirect them to like, just, hey, look at my frequently asked questions for the answer. But having a list of answers to those questions means you can copy paste them in or at least have, you know, don't have to reconstruct them every time you have to answer them. So that's something you can do. Uh, when I do get lots of, uh, of replies, I try to answer everyone, but I also try to do it in a way that I only have to reply once. And obviously you're not entirely in control of that the people might ask for more clarification or just want to keep the conversation going. But I'm like, I'm comfortable answering a dozen emails if I have to answer a dozen emails, but I am uncomfortable juggling a dozen threads. So, uh, yeah, try to be comprehensive and answering a question. Uh, if the question, you know, if it's multi-part, try to answer all those parts so that you don't get a follow-up. And if you do get a follow-up, prepare yourself uh, a short diplomatic speech that you can use for each one that sort of says, hey, listen, I'm glad you're so interested, uh, but I, I, I can't keep this conversation going. Uh, I, I, I use the term... Uh, the period at the end of the sentence. I am, I'm pretty good at putting a period at the end of a thread, so as it were, where I make it clear to the person without hurting their feelings that this is where the conversation ends until the next conversation. But yeah, that's about it for me. Right. How, how you handle this is going to depend a little bit on the size of your newsletter and how many people actually replying to your newsletter uh, emailings. Uh, it may just be that... Um, because you may actually want to encourage interaction uh, to avoid being put in spam boxes and things like that. But what you may want to do is a survey or something like that, rather than inviting them to reply back. Like I never asked a question at this point. I'm just like, nope, nope, nope. Not asking any questions or for any feedback or anything like that. Because I, I do answer my own email and sometimes I honestly fall down on the job, especially I kind of go through phases where if I'm in a project. I'm really less likely to jump on and answer email at the end of the day. I usually, I try to do it so that when I have a new release, I email the newsletter, I know the next day I'm just going to have to take a chunk of hours and try to hit reply on those. I do like to do this all per myself. I mean, uh, there's, I don't know if I like to do it, but I feel uh, kind of an obligation. Kind of, I just want to be like, not the person that voices off on an assistant, which is not to say that's a bad thing if you do. Sometimes it's just how it has to be. But I know how much the readers like it just I've gotten so many emails about how much it really means to them to get a reply to an author they from an author they really like. A lot of times they're like, wow, I totally didn't expect you to reply or you know, and they're super excited, especially younger readers. But all ages can be really uh, delighted with a reply. So I try to keep the answers short, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed the books. Thanks so much for reading. And I try to pick out something from their email, like, oh yeah, you know, you're in Australia. That's awesome. Hope it's uh hope you're having a good hot summer down there right now. Or, you know, just pick one thing that you can kind of let them know you read it. And that it's not just a canned response, you know, a username and uh, refer to something. Every now and then I send a dog picture or something, which even though I'm not asking for dog pictures, pictures in response. I get a ton of dog pictures in response and that just seems fair. You got to reply back and like, oh, your dog's super awesome or your great granddaughter or grand, you know, whatever they sent you. Um, 
so I think that that's just something that's kind of part of it. Just realizing that this is part of the admin duties as an author. Uh, you know, you'll find that you'll get less if you're releasing less. I, I can't like complain about it when I'm releasing a book, a new book and people email back because I emailed them. Of course, that's going to happen. So I think that if you want things to chill and slow down, maybe at some point you're just like, well, I'm probably not going to release as many books and then things will slow down a little bit naturally. Um, but I would also recommend don't start a podcast because then you'll get additional questions about podcast stuff and you'll get pitched by people who don't listen to the show at all and don't even go to the podcast website and send pitch you through your personal author website. Just saying it happens. Um, but I, I really don't particularly mind most of the reader emails unless you get this, this, the hypercritical stuff that you're like, gosh, do I really need to reply to this novel on what I, on my, my errors and my critiquing stuff. And I do think there has to be a point where you're like, okay, for some stuff, it's okay just to delete it. If it's sort of, if it's not genuine, somebody read your books and they're obviously a customer, if it's more getting into like pitching you things or a little spammy or something, you know, I, I especially if it's from somebody's freaking PR person that they hired, I'm like, really? <laughs> nope. Delete. <laughs> so, or just like, nope, not interested. So, I gauging it depending on who's sending the email to, I guess, and whether they are actually a customer or just somebody that's kind of trying to suck up your time. All right. I will pass it off to Andrea. And this is a really random thought, but thank you so much, you two, for knowing how to say my name. <laughs> a lot of people, you guys said it right from the very get-go. Anyway, sorry, that was totally off topic, but I was like, oh, she said my name correctly. I thought this was going to be about Vale's <laughs> name that I was teasing you for correcting it. Nope. Okay. Yeah. Vale's going to tweet me because he's on Twitter and tell yeah. me, oh no, Andrea was like, is Nogly <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so funny. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Melissa says, um, what are useful tropes for each genre? I'd love to hear what worked for you. And that is a small question with a ton of potential answers, honestly. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm all over the board with my tropes. And so I don't, I've never really noticed if something is doing really, really well. I have my favorites though, but I would recommend you go to tvtropes.org, find the tropes in your genre that you like the best and go with those. Um, but when I'm writing romance, I love second chance romances. I think they're a lot of fun. Um, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I, I like, like pretend engagements. Those are kind of fun. Um, when I'm writing fantasy, I love discovery cycles, which is mostly middle grade and young adult, but it still makes me happy to discover magic alongside a character. So like a character who doesn't know they have powers, things like that. I just love that. It makes me happy. Uh, that doesn't necessarily is not necessarily what has worked for me, but it's what I enjoy writing. Um, which is kind of chicken before the egg, you know, the ones that I enjoyed writing the most are the ones that do the most. Actually, that's not accurate. I've enjoyed all the books I've written and <laughs> some of them haven't done as well, but yeah, you're going to have to figure out for yourself, which tropes are going to be the ones that you're going to like a lot. Um, but it's just, it, I have never kept track. Honestly, I just don't keep that close, pay that close of attention. I have had a few things that have worked for me based upon the feedback that I have released. Uh, and I mean, I've received that is, and for the most part, uh, these work across all the genres that I've written in. But then again, I write sci-fi, fantasy, and steampunk, so they're 
they're pretty close in the in the genre spectrum. Uh, found family, people who are just sort of alone in the world, discovering kinship with a bunch of other oddballs. It's it's just a nice story to read and a nice story to write. Um, I have found that I always end up with a cute critter of some kind that's uh, that's that's interesting to the readers, and I get a lot of feedback on those cute critter, critters, no matter how increasingly not cute they are people still like them you make an affectionate character people are gonna like it uh reluctant or in over their head protagonist is really fun too uh it's something that you know when the adventure is thrust upon someone who either doesn't want it or is not prepared for it it puts them closer into the headspace of the reader because there's the reader presumably is not fighting dragons and saving the world. So it provides a closer connection to the audience and also just gives a feeling of higher stakes and haplessness, uh, no matter how high the stakes actually are. Uh, also, this isn't a specifically a trope, but it sort of is. Uh, having a diverse cast, a large and diverse cast uh, with different personalities, backgrounds, races, etc., uh, whether it's real world or all of them are, are uh, of your creation, it just adds depth and variety to the story and helps to create a lot more color. Uh, and also in a series, I like and I, I like to have an escalating sequence of antagonists. Like it's always good to have one overarching, you know, mastermind character. They tend to be the most fun to write and, and the most fun to see defeated. But if you can put a couple of trusted lieutenants, you have to work your way through. Or, and this is one I really liked, if you can have a rival bad guy show up about halfway through, uh, so it will end up with like a three pronged assault going on. Uh, I have had that happen in some way, shape, or form in everything that I've written. And it really helps with a series to keep things fresh and also to 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 build up to that final battle that you get in the in the last book in the series. So I'm in sci-fi and fantasy too, and I'd be hard-pressed to answer this particularly useful even for my own genres. I'm the kind of person I just write what I want to write. And it's not that I, there aren't any tropes. There end up being things I like that are also popular tropes. And But I, I remember somebody did a TV tropes page for my Emperor's Edge. I have no idea if it's still there, if that's the thing kind of thing like Wikipedia where they delete it, if it's like a self-published book. They're like, heck no. But I remember reading through it. I thought, oh, that's really cute. But I didn't even realize there were... I had things that there were things like TV tropes is very extensive. <laughs> like you're like, Oh, that's a trope. I wouldn't have guessed, but some of my favorite things are kind of the assassin slash rogue. That's bad because you know, reasons, uh, but has a good heart. And then, or the orphan kid is big in fantasy that becomes like the prophesied one, or I just has some powers, the down on his luck or her luck ship captain and the ragtag crew who are the only ones who can save the universe, despite the ship being a piece of junk. Uh, you know, kick-ass magical swords. You got to have one of those in fantasy. I mean, if you don't have some magical swords, people are going to be disappointed. Uh, fantasy, big on the quests and the adventuring party. Uh, and I enjoy those things too. I grew up reading all the Dungeons and Dragons inspired books. As to using them for my advantage, to my advantage, eh, I'm, I'm more likely to go against the grain a little bit, like take a trope and then give it a unique twist, which can work. It depends. We were actually talking about this before we hit record, how none of us really expect to become super popular because when we read the super popular books, we're like, I, I don't get it. Why? I don't understand why this is popular. I think I'm just doomed not to be super in touch with the common man or the common woman, common reader, I guess we'll call them. Um, but yeah, uh, like uh, Andrea said, I think TV tropes is kind of a cool place to browse through if you are looking through them. Um, I've 
my favorite series are kind of the ones where I've probably gone farther away from that stuff. I love my Star Kingdom series with the geeky roboticist and the bacteriologist for the hero. They're not exactly your typical action heroes. And the good thing with doing the non-tropy stuff is like, it's going to be a harder sell, but usually you kind of get the fans that are also super like identify with the characters because like oh finally a character like me in the story i've seriously had people that emailed and the bacteriologist who's kind of autistic they'd be like oh my gosh you're writing about me that's so awesome so there's there's people out there waiting for you to do non-tropy stuff too but uh, yeah it's easier to sell honestly the stuff that's more to market so whatever excites you you go ahead and do it all right next question is from william Kelly. Is it worth the time slash energy slash money to release a standalone sci-fi book that is not connected with any of my planned series? I've been crushing this book during NaNoWriMo, and I'm wondering what to do with it after it's done. I'll go ahead and answer this one first because I've done some of these. Um, the one that comes to mind is my book Fractured Stars, which is vaguely in the same universe as my Fallen Kingdom series, but basically not at all connected and the, the characters never meet. So it's basically a standalone. And what I do with those is I release them at full price. I don't try to do the 99 cent thing. I figured these are just going to go to my fans. I, I assume like if they do go beyond that, great. But I just assume that my regular fans are going to read them and maybe you know since it's not a big series since i'm not going to be able to really justify putting a lot of advertising dollars in it because there is no rest of the series for it to sell through i just release it at full price i think that one is 3.99 or 4.99 depending on whatever the length was and, and that way you're not losing like if you do it at 99 cents to your true fans and that's the only book you're not making very much on a novel but if you make it 3.99 4.99 hopefully you'll make enough that it was kind of worth your time to do it i will say with that one i ended up writing a prequel novella to go with it and surprise surprise made that free and same characters is it's nothing to do story-wise with the other book but it's the same characters and it shows how uh, the lady met her dog the heroine of the story met her dog and it's maybe 18,000 words, if memory serves. So it wasn't a huge time commitment to do it. But I just made it perma-free, put it out there. I can't remember if there's an excerpt or just a link to uh, the Fractured Stars book. But it has absolutely helped with that book continue to sell. You know, it sells like 100 copies a month. This is three years after I released it. And that's on after like maybe 400 downloads of people just finding the the free novella. Um, I very, every now and then I remember to like do a Facebook post where I plug a bunch of my free stuff and I'll mention the novella. But basically this is just selling on its own, uh, largely based on, you know, some people just being big enough fans to kind of go find everything in my catalog, which I super appreciate that. But I, I do think that the the freebie leads people into it. So if you have the energy that that may be something to consider to help the, uh, full price book sell. I've released a couple of standalone books. Um, they're harder to market, but I mean, they become part of your backlist. Eventually everything becomes harder to market. So just, you know, like Lindsay says, if you have uh, any sort of a following, there's going to be some residual read through from people who were just finished with the books that they found you through and want re to read more of your writing. So you're going to get some splash from your other stuff. And uh, the time, energy, and money for release is honestly pretty low, with the exception of the edit, uh, depending on the length of the book, and to a lesser degree, the cover, although we've gone over a dozen times that covers can be getting very economically these days. Um, there's not a whole lot that you need to do to put a book out. So if you don't feel like it's going to sell very much, I guarantee it will sell somewhat more than it would if you didn't release it. 
so uh, you may as well release it. And then it's just in the back. It's, uh, you know, for the rest of your career, causing a little trickle of sales. Uh, or if it has zero sales, then you took a minor financial hit and just increased the size of your catalog. I think, you know, don't, don't not release a book just because it's standalone. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, I follow the rules that you must write and must publish. You must write more or whatever. So if you've written it, if you're loving it, then why not release it? And, you know, it doesn't hurt anything if you've spent the time on it to do it. And if you can, you know, even if it doesn't, even if it costs money, you know, like Joe was saying, that little trickle will eventually catch up and it'll eventually pay for itself. And you don't know, maybe it'll do really well. And go ahead and write the novella to go with it anyway. You know you want to. You know it's a good idea. All right. Finn Ambers says, if writing a series, should you put the number of the series on the book cover or leave it off the cover and just have it in the subtitle? I'm seeing a few best-selling authors, such as A.G. Riddle, not even put the series name on the book cover. I'm thinking it looks less busy, and that is one benefit, but what are the pros and cons? Does it look more professional to leave the book number and series title off the cover? And I'm first to answer this one. Um, I don't know. I'm going to suggest that it probably depends on the genre you're writing and the age group. So for example, middle grade, which is where I started writing young adult and a lot of fantasy books, they, they need the, the, the number on the book cover. Um, readers other than romance hate it when it's hard to figure out which book comes next and where they're like, they're not paying attention. I mean, there's so many different things now with metadata on and all the online stuff, everything's changed, but, but even romance readers like to know where to start though. They authors rarely put the number on the cover. Um, said, like I would say it would probably just boil down to personal preference, but Amazon has a rule to keep in mind. If it's in the title or subtitle, it needs to be on the book cover. They don't enforce that rule very much, but I like to stick with it just in case they decide to enforce it on me. And they have once they messaged me and they were like, your, your, um, t- title or series, something says this and your book cover says this. And it was, I'd, I'd said something like, Kalenia Chronicles one instead of Kalenia Chronicles book one. And Amazon made me change that. So, I mean, it just depends. I mean, it's not one of those things where they're going to close your account, your account over, but, um, it's just personal preference. I think. I used to put the series name and number on the cover of the paperback, but I never did it for the ebook. Uh, I do still put the number on the spine of the paperbacks because it just looks better. And it's an attractive thing to have the one, two, three all lined up. Uh, One of the pros of putting a series name on there uh, is it can help you sort of unify the overall look of a series to have to have the, you know, have the series name in the same place on the cover each time you see them lined up next to each other. It will give a unifying like graphical aspect to them. Um, If your cover is not terribly graphically complex, you can up the complexity a little bit by having the extra text on there. Um... Similarly, if there's too much dead space on your cover, you can fill a little bit up with the extra typography, or you can just make your name enormous like they do on the bestseller books. Uh, I've never tried that, but it certainly does make your book look a lot more like uh, some of the best-selling books. As for cons, again, as, as indicated, uh, this can look cluttered, particularly if you have a very long book title or a very long series title. And there's also always the issue of the first book, for some reason, it always feels strange to me to write book one on the cover of, of the first book. Uh, it's like naming a movie, you know, the Lord of the Rings part one. They, they wouldn't, they wouldn't call it that. 
like it's somewhat presumptuous don't you think uh so yeah i tend to leave them off just just uh, as a matter of course i think it's going to depend a little bit on whether you're writing long series and you're is going to be known by the series title versus the book titles ag riddle doesn't have anything over a trilogy i don't think and i feel like his books are like he's really emphasizing the titles of the books whereas with my series nobody knows the titles there's like nine of them i don't know the titles don't ask me the titles of the books from like two series ago so i put this series on the cover because death before dragons is what everybody refers to it as nobody's referring to it with nine books in the series nobody's referring it to by the title so i like to put that on there and emphasize that um, that's what you'll see like on ag riddles he's got other stuff on there like international bestseller he chooses to put a quote on some of them so you kind of do have to decide what you want to be the priority and what you want to show up on the title if you're writing a trilogy maybe the t- you know series title doesn't matter that much uh, i would say to with the paperback, make sure and put it on the paperback because you will find, even if you are not intentionally trying to get your books into bookstores, I have readers send me pictures. Of, I, I saw just, you know, I saw your books at Powell's. Oh, oh, look, you're at my indie bookstore. So you definitely want somebody cruising the shelf to see that this is book three in a series. And you want your readers to be able to like, when they buy the paperbacks that we talked about earlier that we're selling paperbacks these days, you know, you want them to be able to line them up on the shelf in the right order. <laughs> That's kind of a thing. I would be peeved as a reader if I was like, oh shoot, I have to like go on this person's website to figure out which order is it is or look, read, open the book to figure out the order. So definitely have it on the paperback somewhere. Uh, on the ebook, yeah, you decide. I think with a shorter series, it's probably less about the series title. Although Lord of the Rings... How many people who are not super fans know the ni- names of the book? Uh, Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Two Towers. What's the last one, guys? Blanking. Return of the King. Return of the King. Let's see. Uh, so you, you'll just kind of know, depending on how you want your books to be known as, prioritize that. And the fans may be the ones to tell you, honestly. You may think your titles are amazing, uh, and it ends up that they're just like, oh, that one Dragon Blood book. So. All right. I think we have only one question left and Andrea is going to ask it. Yep. This question is from Alexa. How do I work out a good timing for booking an editor? I keep screwing myself. I worry they'll be, if I don't get on their schedule in advance, but even then giving, oh, but then even giving myself plenty of time to write, I'd run up against my booking deadlines. I did again with my work in progress and I'm just miserable overworking myself to make the schedule. My problem isn't procrastination either. I can honestly say that since I began my current work in progress as also the past three books where I ran into the same problem, I worked nonstop, but no matter how much cushy room I felt, I'd given myself something always interferes. And I'm going to say, I really, really uh, feel you on this one. My editor is super flexible. Otherwise I constantly, constantly be struggling with meeting deadlines and keeping to schedules. And I know you said you didn't want to hire another editor. Um, in case you're wondering, I did trim down your post just a bit, just to help us, you know, stay focused and answer your core question. So what you're probably going to want to do is to stop scheduling them out for a while. Um, just finish the book, send it to the editor when they have, when they have an opening and write something else while waiting or take a couple of months while waiting, you know, whatever you need to do. And I know it's easier said than done, but you're pretty much killing yourself to make deadlines. So I'm going to suggest you think long-term on this. Would you rather keep to a strict deadline and have eight books published or, or have a healthy body and have five books published or maybe scale, scale that up a bit? Would you rather have 16 books published and be forced to take two years off to deal with health issues or have 10 books published and a healthy body? It's easier to maintain writing when you keep your health in check day in and day out, and then you won't be forced to take breaks. 
for the longest time, uh, I wouldn't even look, I, I was terrified of, of this happening to me. So I wouldn't even look for an editing slot till I had something to fill it, or at least until my rough draft was done. Um, it feels like a bummer to have to wait months for your slot after you're finished writing, but ideally you're, you're not, you're not waiting months. You're just writing the next thing during that time. And if you look at it that way, you're not wasting time. You just slid everything down by one release cycle. Unless your chosen editor books way, way, way out in advance. So every single time you have a book, like you finish a book, you have to wait six months for a slot. Uh, in which case, then, you know, it's less of, uh, of a situation that you can, you can handle just by sliding it down and release. But, um, yeah, like if you are terrified that you're not going to hit your, your, your target, then hit your target first and then, and then set the next one. I did the same thing, by the way, with pre-orders for the longest time. I wouldn't start a pre-order until the book was back from the editor. So uh, we talk a lot about how rapid release is good. Rapid release isn't everything. And more to the point, we also talk a lot about how you shouldn't burn yourself out. So you have to set realistic goals. And if, if it turns out that you can't, uh, you know, if, if the concern over the deadline is affecting the way that you write, then you have to remove that concern. Uh, and I would therefore recommend that you don't try to hit a deadline. You just finish the book and then set the, uh, the date. Right. I would say finish the book, then set the date and start working on something else while you're waiting. This really only needs to be complicated and trying to schedule things with your editor and for multiple books in advance if you're trying to publish something like Clockwork every month or two. But by the time you're writing that much, you really should, you're probably going to be really dialed in on how long it takes you to finish books and this will become less of a stressful thing. And we've talked about before how it can be kind of an incentive to uh, make your deadline. But that's really for once you've got it dialed in. You know, it takes you X amount of time to write the book and you kind of know. Yeah, and you will after you've written 10 novels or whatever. So that would be my suggestion too. I think that's our last thing. So I'll pass it to Andrea to close the show. The show has been closed. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And don't forget, we do have our live Q&A on our YouTube channel this evening or right now if you're listening to it while we're live <laughs> and you miss oh. it. Or it was February 25th. If you're listening to this in April, sorry. February 25th, 2021. For those who are listening in the future. Anyway, that's it from us. We will talk to you all later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So long, everybody.